as my Patreon grows, so do these happy birthday lists. So I have quite a few this month, and I want to say a very happy winter, or if you're in the other hemisphere, summer birthday to Amy, Andrea, Angie, Anka, Anthea, Ashley, Ashley T., Colleen, Erica, Gabrielle, Gina, Heather, Heather S., Linda, Morgan, Nicola, Nicole, Shelly, Stacy, Tasha, and Vanessa. I hope everyone has an amazing birthday. You know I believe in celebrating for the whole month. I also want to say happy birthday to my husband, Lars, host of Rusty Hinges, because it is his birth month, too. It is the few months of a year that he is actually four years older than me. So, happy birthday to my old man. Hope everyone has a great month. You eat some extra cake for me, and happy birthday. In 1990, a kidnapped teen broke free from her captor and ran to the police. What they uncovered was a serial killer, according to some. Others believe it was just one piece of a human trafficking ring. More than 30 years later, the answer remains unclear. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crime Lines. I want to thank Anandi for suggesting this case. This week, we are covering a case out of South Africa. This is the second one I've done from that country. I did cover Karabo Mokwena last year, if you want to go back and listen to that. That's also a fair warning that this case will have a certain number of Dutch slash Afrikaans names, and I'm doing the best I can with them. This case is a rough one and deals with sexual assault and crimes against children. I will not be graphic with it as usual, but I did want to let you know that it was a child case and it dealt with a sexual violence. So if that is not for you, I will see you back next week. Let's get started. On Thursday, January 11th, 1990, a 16-year-old named Joan was in Church Square, which is the historical center of Pretoria. South Africa is one of the few countries with multiple capital cities, having three of them, one for each branch of government. Pretoria is the executive and administrative capital. Joan had recently moved to the area and was still getting used to the bus schedule to get to and from school. That's why on this particular morning, she was at the bus stop having missed the bus. She tried to call her mom from a payphone but couldn't reach her. After Joan hung up the phone from trying to get in touch with her mom, a blonde woman approached her. This woman mentioned something about having a job for Joan and wanting her to come with her. Joan explained she was actually trying to get to class and had missed the bus. The woman offered to drive Joan to school, but they had to make a quick stop at the woman's house first so she could let her husband know that she was going to be gone longer taking Joan to school. Joan decided to accept this ride from this woman who appeared mild-mannered, appeared kind. It was very disarming. The woman then drove about five minutes north before she arrived at a house in the Capitol Park neighborhood. Joan waited in the car while the woman ran inside real quick. 
the woman came back out and said her husband actually wasn't home. So did Joan mind waiting until he got back? Then this woman invited Joan inside. Joan said as she entered the house and walked down the hallway, a man came out from an adjoining room. He had a gun, and though Joan tried to get away, he managed to get her to the floor. He had pills of some sort in his hand that he forced into her mouth. He then brought her into a room and sexually assaulted her. The reporting says molested. The man and the woman then locked Joan into a cupboard. Though the drugs were starting to make her loopy, Joan looked around the small storage area and found a lid in that space. She was able to take it and slide it up a crack between the door and the frame and unlatch the eye hook lock. Joan slowly opened the door and found that the house was actually empty, or at least it appeared that way. The man had left, and the woman was outside gardening, as though she hadn't just kidnapped a child and left her in the cupboard. Some reports say that Joan found a phone and called a family member, a cousin, telling the location of the house and that she needed help. Then Joan managed to find an open door and run out without the woman immediately seeing her. Joan flagged down a car, and at this point, the drugs the man had forced her to take took effect and she lost consciousness. Other reports on how this all happened omit the phone call first. Regardless of how it happened, she did find her way to a car. That passing motorist contacted the police, and Joan was able to direct the authorities right back to the house where she had been taken to. By the time they got there, though, the couple had realized that their victim had escaped, and they also fled. The occupants of the house were 52-year-old Cornelius Van Ruyen, who went by Hert, and his 48-year-old partner, Francina Johanna Harhoff, who went by Joey. Joey realized Joan had escaped pretty soon after she made it out of the door, so Joey ran down the street first looking for her. But Joan had found her way to safety by then. Joey then called her sister in a panic, saying that she had done something that will have her executed, and she needed to get in touch with Hert. This call was placed around 11 a.m. After the call, Hert got home and realized what had happened. It's believed the couple then tried to destroy or hide some evidence before they then fled from the home. Their movements after this point had to be pieced together by talking to family members who they made contact with over the next few days. It appears the first place, or at least one of the first places they went, was Hert's ex-wife Aletta's home. Aletta was told by the couple that they had kidnapped a girl and the girl escaped, so they were trying to avoid the police. They then left her house and headed to Durban, which is a coastal town where Hert and Joey had vacationed before and where Hert occasionally worked. This was about a seven-hour drive from Pretoria. On the way there, in a town called Hilton, Hert was pulled over for speeding. 
Hilton was in a different province from Pretoria, so word about this couple being on the run hadn't quite spread that far. Hert was ticketed and then sent on his way. But I do want you to put a little pin in this incident because it will come up again. The next day, Friday, January 12th, the pair drove back to Pretoria to Joey's grown daughter Amor's home. But Amor and her family were not there. So Harriet and Joey essentially broke into the house. When Amor and her husband got home, they were obviously alarmed by the appearance of a break-in. And then they were surprised to find that the intruders were actually Amor's mother and her mother's boyfriend. The two had been sleeping when Amor and her family got home. According to Amor, Joey admitted to her that they had kidnapped a girl who had escaped, but she said it was for ransom and that the girl was actually a policeman's daughter. So when Amor told them that the best thing they could do at this point was to turn themselves in, Joey said she couldn't do that because obviously the police would kill her. The couple quickly left Amor's home and went again to Hert's ex-wife's house. On Saturday, January 13th, they left again for the Durban area, which is on the coast, and checked into a resort there. Joey told the owner that her doctor had told her she needed to take a vacation because she was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. The two checked out the next day, skipping out on the bill. The police had been looking for them this whole time, and either they realized Herit had gone to his ex-wife's house or they rightly suspected it because they staked out her home in addition to staking out his house. The back and forth from the coast to Pretoria continued, and on Monday, January 15th, the police spotted the pickup truck they were driving back in Pretoria, not far from their home, actually. This was a mutual spotting situation, and Hurt saw the cops as well, so he took off. There was a short but fast car chase before the truck came to a sudden stop. One source said the stop was initiated by Hurt, and another said the police actually shot out a tire. Either way, the truck stopped moving. According to an officer at the scene, Joey raised her hands from the passenger side, and they thought the couple was preparing to surrender. But then Hert pulled out two guns, shooting Joey in the head with one of them. After the shot, one of the officers rushed the truck on foot and tried to yank the driver's door open to take Hert into custody. But the door was locked, and the officer watched as Hert put the other gun to his own head and pulled the trigger. Both Joey and Hert were dead at the scene. Evidence indicated that this murder-suicide may have been planned in advance. Hert and Joey had written out notes to their families and wills on January 11th. That was the day Joan escaped. So either they never planned to be taken alive or they at least suspected they wouldn't be. But with the report that Joey's hands were in the air, maybe she had changed her mind and was prepared to go quietly, but Hert had a different idea. After the deaths of Joey and Hert, the police searched their home. 
They were surprised by what they found. Under a carpet in the garage, they found a piece of paper with the address and phone number of 11-year-old Odette Boucher written on it. They also found the address of 12-year-old Anna Marie Voiponar also written down and her house keys on a string. With the keys, they found Odette's yellow sports bag and her class captain badge. In a desk drawer, they found the prefect badge for 13-year-old Yolanda Vessels. The significance of these items was huge because all three of these girls had been missing for months. And now items belonging to them were found in Hert von Ruyen's house after he and his girlfriend Joey abducted another child. Joan was the last victim of Hert von Ruyen and Joey Harhoff, but she certainly wasn't the first. Even before finding this evidence of the other missing girls in the home, though, the police knew Joan wasn't Hert's first victim because he had been arrested for kidnapping a decade earlier. So let's go ahead and talk about Hert and Joey, and then we will cover the cases they're suspected in. Hert von Ruyen got his start as a criminal in his teens, but mostly as a petty criminal. He did land himself in reform school at 16 after he stole a car. Now, he claimed he stole it to go visit his poor sick mother, which may have been a story concocted to get a lighter sentence because the thefts continued after this point. A year after that, he stole another car. And then at 22, Hert was convicted for stealing car parts and clothing. For the next 20 years, Hert put on a pretty good show of having turned over a new leaf. He went into the construction business with his brothers. He married. He had six children with his wife. And he just lived the life of a husband, a father, a businessman. Then in 1979, Hert was arrested at the age of 42. Hert kidnapped a 10-year-old girl and a 13-year-old at the same time. He lured them into his truck with the promise of treats, and then he wouldn't let them go. Hert drove them out of the city, where he then physically and sexually assaulted both of them and held them overnight. He eventually left them alive in Pretoria, not far from where they lived. When they were found, they had bruises and cuts and just evidence of this attack. Hert was arrested and he was convicted in this double assault, and he was given a four-year sentence. Three years into it, Hert was released early for good behavior and his wife divorced him. At some point after this, Hert met and started dating Joey Harhoff. Joey had at least four children, three sons and a daughter, and her sons said that she changed after she met Hert. Some of her family couldn't figure out what she saw in him, but she was completely taken by him. She became, according to her son, as meek as a lamb. Joey's daughter, Amor, said that wasn't quite the story the press made it out to be. While Joey had likely been manipulated by Hert, and she was certainly somewhat subservient to him, Amor says we're not talking about a quiet, loving mother and grandmother who was led astray by Hert. According to Amor, Joey was 
horrifically, physically, and emotionally abusive for Amor's entire childhood. And then, when a family member walked in on Amor's father sexually abusing the little girl, they went to Joey with what they saw. And Joey shrugged it off. A lot of people, unfortunately, have stories of one parent looking the other way while they were being abused or not believing them when it was disclosed. That's something I have heard far, far too often. But now, with Hert, we see Joey actually luring Joan into the car and then into the house so Hert could attack her. So in hindsight... I think it's fair to ask the question if Joey was turning the other way or was she willingly and knowingly allowing her daughter to be abused? Because that would definitely be more in line with what happened in her relationship with Hert. If Joey was Hert's accomplice, who's to say she wasn't the accomplice of her husband? I'm less willing to accept the Joey was manipulated into it narrative after I heard her daughter's story in an interview with the South African Broadcasting Corporation. Amor did write a book about her childhood. It has been translated into English. It's called Battered, Abused, Shamed, Joey Harhoff Was My Mother. If you want more information on what Amor went through, a perspective of someone who knew Joey Harhoff well. It's not really a look into this case, but it is a memoir that is out there if you're interested. At the time Joey met Herod, he was working in construction and also performing duties in church as a lay preacher. It looked like he had turned over a new leaf yet again, but it wasn't long after they met that it appears they began to prey on girls together. Not that Herod needed Joey or that this began when they met, Rumors have it that Hert wasn't entirely secretive about his pedophilia. Someone Hert hired to do work around the house even told police that Hert threatened to not pay her if she didn't bring him young girls. There are even reports that Hert told other people, friends of his, about abusing children, bragged about it, really. Now, I don't know any of these people. I don't know their situations or why they wouldn't be comfortable going to the police with this, but I am going to say that there was likely a reason Herod felt comfortable sharing this part of his life with at least some of them, and that's because they were probably pedophiles too. The idea that Herod Van Ruyen was part of a pedophile ring was included in some of the reporting, and I just don't think it's wild speculation here. Who else could he openly share some of the stories about abusing children, if not with other people who also abuse children? While I haven't seen anything about arrests being made in connection with Hert, I think if the investigation cast a large enough net at the time of Hert's death, they likely would have found something among his social circle. My opinion only, of course. Another way Hert and Joey allegedly tried to find victims without kidnapping was to apply to become foster parents. Their application was thankfully denied. 
I'm pretty sure Hertz's 1979 conviction for abducting and assaulting two children was a pretty big red flag. But some children's group homes also contacted the police to say that Joey inquired with them about taking girls over the weekends or for Christmas holidays. It appears that one 14-year-old did go to their home through a program like this. There has not been a report that anything was disclosed by her, but how in the world did they get approved when Hert had that type of conviction on his record? You have to almost assume that they lied. Possibly Joey presented herself as a single woman, leaving Hert's existence off of the paperwork. It also seems like these attempts to get a foster child into their home short or long term overlapped with the time Hert, with Joey's help, was abducting children. Unlike back in 1979, it didn't appear that Hert was too eager to let these children go afterwards to be living witnesses to turn him in. There have been multiple cases looked at as possibly involving Hert and Joey. Three of them were tied to the couple through evidence found in the house. More have been circumstantially or through witness statements possibly linked. The settled-on number of suspected victims sits at six, and we'll go over those cases now in the order they went missing. The first girl to go missing was 14-year-old Tracy Lee Scott Crossley. Tracy lived in the Johannesburg area, and on August 1st, 1988, she wasn't feeling well. She had a minor respiratory infection and had also been evaluated for possible epilepsy in the prior months. Her mother, Noreen, offered for Tracy to go to work with her that day, but Tracy wanted to stay home. She planned to stay in bed for the morning and then go to the Cresta Shopping Center in the afternoon. Before going to the store, Tracy asked her older brother, Mark, who was 21 at the time, to go to the shopping center with her, but he didn't want to go, so Tracy went on her own. When her mother, Noreen, got home from work around 2.40 in the afternoon, she found that the house was locked up. According to an interview with Janie Allen with the Sunday Times, Noreen said the items Tracy bought at the store were in the home. So Tracy would have gone to the shopping center, come home to drop her stuff off, and then left again. All that was missing was Tracy and a pink blanket that she usually kept on her bed. Noreen reported Tracy missing to the police and missing posters were made up. Scent dogs were brought in to do a search, and Tracy's father, Paul, even offered a reward that brought in a lot of calls, but no real leads. And these calls weren't just people trying to give helpful tips. Some of the calls were rude, harassing, and vulgar. Thinking it was possibly the person who took Tracy who was behind these calls, the family did look into putting a trace on their phone, but they couldn't afford it, and the police didn't seem to see it as a good use of resources, I guess. At some point, a tip came in that Tracy was seen getting into a Volkswagen Beetle at the shopping center. This is not a confirmed sighting, and we do know Tracy made it home after the trip to the mall. 
that person who gave her a ride may have just been a good Samaritan dropping her off. But it is possible that the person brought her home, let her drop off her things, and waited for her outside, and then Tracy left with them again. Tracy's mother said she was a cautious child and had even gotten into an argument with friends who thought going to a disco at their young age was safe. Tracy strongly disagreed. So Tracy getting into a car with a total stranger seems out of character for her. She would have left with someone she knew or possibly someone she did not see as a threat. If she wasn't feeling well and a kind middle-aged woman who seemed maternal offered her a ride, she may have taken it. Now, that said, there's no evidence that a kind middle-aged woman would have been Joey Harhoff or that there was a kind middle-aged woman involved at all. One of Hert's sons said that he and Joey did not have a car matching the description from the witness, and there really has been no evidence linking them to Tracy. I was concerned when I was reading about this that Tracy's case may have been put under Hert's umbrella of crimes too soon. That's certainly what the media reporting suggests by constantly linking this case to him when there is not any evidence that has been made public doing so. But then I read in some more recent reports that the investigators were pursuing Tracy's case as possibly a separate crime altogether, and I hope that's true. But the connection made between Hert and this case did mean that Tracy's case got a lot more attention in the media over the years than it may have gotten otherwise. Maybe that attention will lead to answers. The second child who went missing three and a half months later on December 22nd, 1988, just three days before Christmas, was 12-year-old Fiona Harvey. Fiona lived in Peter Meritzburg, which is a town about an hour from Durban, where Hert and Joey were known to vacation. It was a school break for the holidays, and Fiona was walking from her house to a local shop to buy some milk. This walk was literally two blocks, and her family expected her home within 20 minutes. When Fiona didn't make it home, they went to the store and learned she never even made it there. Witnesses said they saw Fiona talking to a man in a white Ford Bantam, which is a pickup truck manufactured in South Africa and relatively common at the time. There was a logo on the truck, and it was later identified as matching the description of the logo from Hertz Contracting Company. I want to note that the sightings identifying the logo came out after the story about Hert and Joey hit the news. I'm not saying that automatically discounts them as accurate, but I do think it's necessary to give the full context and timeline of the information already public and the supposed sighting. Now, the next girl who went missing was 12-year-old Joan Horn from Pretoria. It was June 7th, 1989, and she was walking with a group of friends. A blonde woman sitting in a white pickup truck that was parked nearby called out to the group of girls. The woman offered Joan a small amount of money if she would guide her on how to get somewhere in town. The amount offered was 20 rand, which would be about 155 rand today, which is roughly 10 U.S. dollars. To a 12-year-old, though, this is a decent amount of money for a little job. 
Joan told her friends to let her sister know she'd be back later, and she got into the white Ford Bantam truck to lead the woman where she wanted to go. The woman drove off with Joan, and Joan was never seen again. Her friends were able to give a description of the truck and the woman to the police immediately. This was not an in-hindsight identification like the witnesses in the Fiona Harvey case. After Hert and Joey's death, the police realized that the woman the kids described fit Joey's description, and the truck matched Hert's truck. Three months later were the next two disappearances, and like the cases that Hert spent three years locked up for, this was a double abduction. 11-year-old Odette Boucher and 12-year-old Anna Marie Vampanar were at Odette's house on September 22, 1989. They both lived in Kempton Park, which is a suburb of Johannesburg. They lived near a public swimming pool, and the two wanted to go swim, so they walked to Anna Marie's house so Anna Marie could grab her swimsuit. At 3.30 in the afternoon, Odette's family would have expected her home, but they checked the pool and she wasn't there. When they went to check to see if she was at Anna Marie's home, they realized that the girls had never even made it there hours earlier. The police were called and began a pretty intense investigation, but the girls have not been seen since. Odette and Anna Marie were linked to Hert von Ruyen because of some of their belongings that were found in the home, like their addresses written down, Odette's school items, and Anna Marie's house keys. They were also linked to Hert in another way. They actually had met both him and Joey before because they were friends with Joey's niece, Yolanda Vessels. So there may not have been much of a ruse at all to pick these two kids up. Just pulling up and offering a ride or asking for a favor would have been enough to have gotten Anna Marie and Odette into the car because these weren't strangers. They were trusted adults. They were the aunt and uncle of a friend. So I've mentioned twice now that Odette and Anna Marie's addresses were found written down in the house, and that is a pretty important detail because letters were mailed to the parents of both girls after they went missing. Though mailed at the same time on September 23rd, the day after they went missing, they were received a week apart. Anna Marie's family received their letter first. It was supposedly from their daughter saying that she and Odette had run away with some boys and they were in Durban. The letter to Odette's parents was supposedly from Odette and said the same thing, that they had gone to Durban for the weekend with some boys. At 11 and 12 years old, the parents didn't believe the girls had taken off with boys for a weekend, and neither did the police. Initially, the police announced that they believed the letters were written by the girls under duress. Later, it was reported that at least Odette's letter was likely a forgery. But these weren't the only letters connected to this case. In June 1990, nine months after the disappearances and five months after Hert and Joey's deaths, a store clerk at a fabric store about halfway between Pretoria and Johannesburg saw a girl who appeared to be around 12. 
The woman said this girl had short black hair and she noticed her because she looked afraid. After the girl left the store, the clerk found a piece of paper tucked between carpet samples. The text of the letter has been reported rather inconsistently, but it essentially said, I am Anna Marie Vampanar. I am with my kidnappers. Myself and my friend Odette are in need of help. Some of the reporting says that there was also an address written down that pointed to a Johannesburg suburb, but what that address was has not been made public. A handwriting expert initially said that the writing did match Anna Marie. An investigation into the address on the note got them nowhere, but if this was Anna Marie, it would have shown that she was still alive five months after Hert and Joey died and that it would mean that either they didn't kidnap the girls in spite of the evidence saying they did, or this was part of a larger organization, which we will talk about that theory later. At the time, many or most believed this letter was from Anna Marie because the handwriting looked very similar. But this letter immediately gave some reasons to push the pause button on it. For one thing, it was written in English, and both of the girls spoke Afrikaans as their first language. Anna Marie's English, according to what her mom told the SABC News in 2018, was not to the level demonstrated in the note. Afrikaans is a Germanic language. It evolved from the Dutch language that colonizers brought to Southern Africa, and it blended with other languages. But it has very few overlaps with English directly. English and Afrikaans are not mutually intelligible. And Afrikaans is spoken as a first language by more people in South Africa than English is. So it wouldn't be like Anna Marie really pushed her English skills because she needed the letter to be understood in English. Had she written it in Afrikaans, her first language, the one she'd be most comfortable in, millions of people in the country could have translated it to any English-speaking police officer. In addition to that, and probably most importantly, I probably should have just led with this, Anna Marie's name was spelled incorrectly. For one thing, she has a hyphen between Anna and Marie, and that was omitted. Also, she does not have an E at the end of Marie, and in the note, the E was in there. Odette's name was also spelled incorrectly. Whoever wrote this note doubled the D and only used one T when that should have been swapped. The SABC had a forensic handwriting expert look at the letter and known samples of Anna Marie's handwriting. This expert did not think it was a match. She explained that she looked beyond obvious similarities to things that are more subconscious, things like spacing between words, the direction of strokes, and so on. She said that even when you are trying to copy someone else's handwriting, you tend to still do it the way you do it, whether it's stroke direction, pressure on the pen, or spacing. She concluded that it was highly probable that someone other than Anna Marie wrote this letter. We just spent a lot of time on a letter that's been completely debunked. Maybe this is why my episodes run so long. Anyway, let's move on. 
There's one last disappearance we need to discuss, and that was the November 3rd, 1989 disappearance of 13-year-old Yolanda Vessels. Yes, Yolanda was the friend of Odette and Anna Marie, who just so happened to be Joey Harhoff's niece. The neighborhood the girls all lived in was still really cautious after the disappearances of Odette and Anna Marie from just six weeks before. But Yolanda wouldn't have thought anything about getting into a car with her aunt as she walked to school one day. A stranger, sure, she wouldn't get in that car. Her friends had just been kidnapped. But this was her aunt. And that is in line with what witnesses said happened. They described Yolanda getting into a car with a woman, and the description of the woman fit Joey's description. And then we have Yolanda's prefect badge being found in Herit's desk at the house. Would Joey really have set up her own niece for abuse and possibly worse by Herit? I say we can look into what she did to her own daughter for an answer to that. There are also two additional children mentioned on occasion in relation to Hert von Ruyen, and I'm going to include them, but there's really not much to go on. One is nine-year-old Rosa Peel. She went missing in the summer of 1989, but there is very little available on her case online. Even the date of her disappearance is very vague. The other was a 16-year-old named Janet who was found wandering disoriented in Durban. She had no memories of what happened to her. She said she went to the mall, a blonde woman approached her, and she remembered absolutely nothing after that, which memory loss like this is a common side effect of some sedative medications. This was in July 1989, so it was a month after Joan Horn went missing and two months before Odette and Anna Marie disappeared. The final four abductions, Odette, Anna Marie, Yolanda, and the surviving Joan all seem to be linked to Hert or his home. Obviously, the surviving Joan is, and the other three are circumstantially linked. How else would their things have gotten in his house? Fiona and the younger Joan both had eyewitnesses, which aren't concrete, but they're something. There's even less in regards to Tracy. What investigators really hoped for was some forensic evidence, though in 1990, DNA testing was still fairly new. Short of finding blood or human remains, it seemed unlikely they would find enough forensic evidence to test. But as we know, DNA testing technology improved rapidly, and in 1996, the bank that owned the house turned it over to the police to do with whatever they wanted. So now the search didn't have to be neat or organized. They actually had the ability to pull down walls to search, and that's exactly what they did. It was May of 1996 that the police tore the house apart, literally, looking for any clues. The entire house was vacuumed for hairs or fibers. The roof of the house was removed. The upstairs was completely searched. 
They used sonar equipment to see if there were any secret compartments, open spaces, either behind rooms or in the floorboards even. A search of the yard turned up some animal bones, but nothing related to any of the missing children. The house was demolished as they searched every crack between every floorboard and every space between beams, but absolutely nothing that has been made public was found. Multiple times over the years, bones would be found somewhere in a place that had a connection to Hert or Joey or both, and people would wonder if this was it, had one or more of the girls been found. There was one issue early on with DNA testing of these remains that were found throughout the years, and that was that two of the children were adopted. I know in Joan Horn's case, it sounds like they got DNA from a hair they found on one of her things. It's not clear how or even if they got Fiona's DNA. There is some indication they may have, but we'll get into that later. In March 2007, a storm uncovered some bones that were buried in the sand near where Hert and Joey had been between Joan's escape and their deaths. This was maybe a five to 10 minute walk from that resort they stayed in. The remains were actually two skeletons, an adult woman and a child. The race and gender of the child's remains could not be determined, but the woman was black. The missing girls were all white and none of them were large enough to have been considered adult size. And none of them would have had the advanced development of someone older. Even the surviving Joan, though 16, was small for her age. It's actually believed Joey may have mistaken her for younger than she was because of it. Hert's interest was not in adult-sized women. It was also determined that the remains had not been there any longer than 10 years, making them too recent to be connected to this case. There was at least one more search of this beach area since it did seem odd that Hert and Joey traveled back and forth from Pretoria to the coast while they were on the run, almost like they were transporting something. Could they have been gathering the remains of their victims or evidence and trying to dump it all at the beach? That's a possibility, but no evidence of this has been found. Two other leads around this time both involved swimming pools. In 2007, a neighbor of Hert put in a pool, and when the contractors dug up the yard, they uncovered bones. As you can imagine, this hit the media, but these bones were determined not to be human. Then in 2013, a homeowner was either having a pool removed or repaired. The pool had been installed back in 1989, and it was put in by a pool company Hert occasionally did work for. It has not been determined, as far as I can tell, whether Hert worked on this project or not. When the pool was dug up, the remains of a female in a green dress and leggings were found. None of the girls went missing wearing a similar outfit. The remains were determined to likely be from an adult, but there is some question with this since the remains were not complete. The bones did have markings on them indicating possible 
dismemberment, and there were holes in the dress, possibly from a stabbing. The last news reports I saw about this just said that the bones were being sent overseas to attempt DNA extraction. I do have some limited access to information in South Africa, even media information, but I imagine if these remains, if they were able to extract DNA, and if it did match any of the missing girls, it would have been announced everywhere that reports on this case, and I did not see it. So while a lot of the leads in this case are along these lines, that the girls were murdered and buried somewhere, possibly somewhere Herit had done construction, there have been some sightings that people believe show that the girls were actually abducted and then trafficked. One statement was from the officer who pulled Herit and Joey over for speeding shortly after Joan escaped. Remember, I told you to remember that, and you probably already forgot it. But he said that the girls were covered in a gray and pink blanket and appeared drugged. Why this police officer didn't inquire about this at the time, if he suspected minor children were drugged in a car, I do not know. Perhaps at the time, without the context of knowing what Herit and Joey had done to Joan, maybe he thought they were just sleepy on a long drive, Maybe the they looked drugged was a hindsight observation. At least I hope so, because the idea that a police officer saw two drugged children and let them go on their way is appalling. There was a similar blanket to what the officer described found at Herit's house after his death. They did take it and try to do some testing on it, but all that revealed was that this blanket was covered in animal fur. It does seem odd to me that the blanket would have made it from the vehicle to the house during that time period because the police were staking out Herod's house. Did he really go back, go inside, drop off a blanket, do whatever else, and leave without the police seeing him? That seems far-fetched to me. There was another sighting from around the same time Herod and Joey were fugitives. This came from a hitchhiker. He said he was picked up by two men and that there was a girl with them. She looked frightened and passed him a note. This note had the name Odette Boucher on it. It had the name and phone number of the lead investigator in her disappearance, and it had the description of the car they were currently driving in, plus the registration number. The man did turn this note over to the police, but it was not a match to Odette's handwriting at all, and was considered a hoax. In May 1990, a businessman who had traveled to Zambia said he saw three girls who looked to him like Fiona, Odette, and Anna Marie. Though it appears his sighting was actually true, like he actually saw something, the girls turned out not to be them. Some reporting still points to the note from the fabric store as evidence that the girls were alive and trafficked and not killed by Herit and Joey, but I feel like it's been sufficiently debunked primarily from SABC News. In January 2019, news broke that a woman named Leah Sloan came forward claiming to be Fiona Harvey. She was backed by a private investigator and a forensic expert who believed her. At the time, she was 41 years old and claimed that nearly 30 years before, she was walking to the store and remembered holding hands with a man and a woman who promised her candy. 
She said she later woke up in a room with five other girls. After this, she suffered unspeakable abuse before Hert let her go. She didn't know how long she was held, but it was long enough that she outgrew her clothes. At the age of 12, that could have been months or it could have been a year. She then ended up on the streets trying to survive. She was taken under the wing of someone who then trafficked her into the sex trade. Eventually, Leah said she became a high-end escort as an adult and undertook a lot of beauty treatments, which led to her looking younger than her 41 years. Fiona's family was shown a photo of Leah and they said, nope, that's not Fiona. Sure, 30 years had passed, but they said the eyes were different and they refused to even meet with Leah, saying that she was incorrect about who she believed she was. The forensic expert, however, said that there were three points of similarities between some specific freckles that made him believe Leah and Fiona were one and the same. But here at Crime Lines, we just did an episode in December on Alexis Patterson. There was a woman in that case who had a lot more in common with Alexis than a few freckles. They had scars and other marks, and the woman looked a lot like Alexis's mother. Alexis's mother looked at the picture and believed this was her daughter, and yet it was proven she wasn't. I was surprised to read that a forensic expert would so quickly jump on the idea of a few freckles in common and dismiss the parents saying that the eyes didn't match, and in my opinion, the very obvious differences in Fiona and Leah's noses. The expert made some comment about hearing that there had been surgery on the ears or the nose, but do they have that documented or are they taking Leah's word for it? As always, DNA is going to get the final say here, and it was reported in the publication The Witness in February 2019 that a DNA test had been done in 2018 that showed Leah Sloan was not Fiona Harvey. Like I said, Fiona was adopted, so it's not clear if they had her DNA or if they were able to do some type of test to show who Leah Sloan really was, because the witness investigated and they found out that the youthful appearance of Leah Sloan was not due to beauty treatments entirely, but it was because Leah Sloan was Jacqueline Sloan a woman six years younger than Fiona Harvey would be. They even tracked down Leah's brother, who said their parents died young and they were raised by their grandparents. He provided a birth date for Leah, along with pictures of her and her siblings as children together. He also said this was not the first time she's done something like this, that she was known to prey on people for sympathy and then move on when she was found out. He said when he saw a picture of her on social media claiming to be Fiona Harvey, he wasn't surprised she was pulling something like this. But Leah Sloan hasn't moved on. She has videos online that have been uploaded fairly recently to YouTube telling her story. And you can find them if you just search Hert von Ruyen on YouTube. The channel name is Hert von Ruyen and then the word investigation, but it's in Afrikaans, so I don't know how to say it. The only reason I know what it means is because Google Translate exists. Some of the videos on the channel are in English, some are in Afrikaans, but they are supported by Leah's attorney and they support her claims that she is Fiona Harvey. 
these videos also put into question some of the accepted facts in the case that they say aren't quite so factual. Some of these alleged falsehoods were also brought up by one of Herit von Ruyen's sons. His name is Philippus, but he goes by Flippy. He said at various times that the girls were killed in satanic rituals, that the bodies were destroyed by acid, that they were smuggled out of the country into sex trafficking, and not just that, it was done with the help of government officials. He also said that Herit and Joey were murdered by the police to cover up the pedophile ring. And as for that last theory, Flippy is not the only one who believes that. He did implicate some powerful people in the pedophile ring, and where powerful people are involved, cover-ups happen. This is not unlike the conspiracy theories related to Jeffrey Epstein's death. At the end of the day, there are two theories here, and it is that the girls were the victims of a serial killer or they were victims of human trafficking. Both of those theories could include the involvement of other people. With the murder theory, some have said that Herit and Joey were essentially the South African version of Fred and Rose West. They abducted the girls for Herit to abuse, and then they killed them later. But unlike the West family home, no victims or evidence of violence was ever found at Herit's house. The evidence of human trafficking is similar in that it is only circumstantial. There are records indicating that Hert drove a two-and-a-half-ton van from near the Durban Harbor and Pretoria to transport fire doors. Shortly after each girl was kidnapped, Hert drove to Durban on one of these jobs. They even have photographs of Joey Harhoff near the shiploading docks in Durban, and they believe she was there with Hert. Rather than just fire doors, was Hert transporting the girls to the harbor to then be smuggled out of the country? We can only speculate. The investigations into these disappearances, the private investigations and the official police investigation, have looked at both of these theories pretty in detail and continues to do so. These disappearances brought a lot of attention, and therefore there are certain private investigations happening, some in conjunction with the media, some with the families, and some just people who are passionate about this case. One of the reasons these cases have really gripped South Africa is not just because these were missing children. It's that these were missing white children who were taken and presumably killed by a white couple. The late 1980s saw huge resistance to apartheid, which is the policy of racial segregation. To try to continue support of the segregation, many in the white suburbs were sold this idea of being safer in their neighborhoods and away from Black Africans. And now here, news is breaking that a white man and a white woman went into those very neighborhoods where they fit right in and kidnapped and possibly murdered these children. It caused a cognitive dissonance over what apartheid means in regards to safety. There was also a conversation and a continued conversation about what if the victims were Black? Would they have gotten the same attention from the public or the police? 
It seems like we know the answer to that, and we know the answer is no, since one of the original investigators told the publication The Witness that school uniforms were found slashed up and the color of the uniforms indicated they were from a school for Black students. So we have slashed uniforms connected to the case, yet no Black victims have been named or speculated about. We have no evidence that Tracy Lee Scott Crossley was abducted by Herit von Ruyen, yet her case gets publicity even 30 years later in connection to this. Herit and Joey very likely had more victims, ones whose names we don't even know because their disappearances didn't even make it in the newspapers, and the police very likely didn't look for them. Their names we do not know, and therefore I cannot report on them. But it does appear there is some circumstantial evidence that not all of Herit's victims were white. The Weekend Witness reported in 2019 that old evidence that was collected may be retested using new technology. Perhaps the lead to break open this case is still to come because regardless of our theories, regardless of our discussions, regardless of our social issues, these children are still missing. If you have any information, you can call the South African Police Service in Pretoria at 2712-393-1000. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.